Come follow us on our journey to get a low-budget DIY feature film from script to screen and beyond. And beyond. Nobody, nobody knows who we are. <laughs> Look at yourselves, realistically, nobody's going to give you that money. Nobody. You don't know who the fuck you are. It's a complete risk. You are unknown. This is our first feature film, something we're going to do together. Uh, you're going to get it warts and all. For now, you're just some pair of idiots like everyone else. Never wait for permission. You just have to start. Give yourself something impossible to do and then just find the bloody way of making that thing happen. This is DIY Cinema Cult. This is episode 29. 29. Ah, oh, do you remember being 29? Uh, yeah, I think so. What were you doing when you were 29? I think I was probably being a knob. <laughs> <laughs> Not like now, Mark. Not like now. Not like 29. now. 29. I remember thinking 29 was quite old. Yeah, of course, because you're, you're on the cut. You're, you had this kind of, well, I say you, all of us, us, the, the royal we. Yeah. Uh, you had an anxiety about becoming 30 because you thought 30. you were somehow losing all of your shit. You were going to just become a complete, you know, your life and your youth was over. Yeah. Uh, your vitality, your, your significance yeah. was going to be suddenly washed away well obviously me and my music partner chris uh we did our 30th joint 30th yes birthday party where we decided that the concept of it was because we were both 30 it was going to be a 60th birthday party i remember the gray love party and the gray love party which i have literally no memory of because of well various factors Mm. (laughs) uh and um um, so everyone had to come as a pensioner mm. to this party, and I think you had to. Pe- you, it was free, but you had to present uh, a pension book or something as you arrived. Um, yeah, and you weren't allowed in unless you were dressed as pensioner. Dress code was pensioner, mm. um, because we thought sixty was so fucking <coughs> old yeah. that it was an impossible idea. It was literally the idea of being, you know, that ancient was so far away. Ironically, I'm significantly closer to that age now than I was then. And I went to another. I went to a 50th birthday party this weekend, and the people we stayed with, lovely friends of ours, are 65 and 67. And it was like, wow, that's we haven't really grown up that much. Yeah. Um, so, but 29 felt like did feel like a transition. I think I was 24 maybe 25 when it was your 30th yeah. I'm, trying, I'm trying to think yeah, yeah, roughly yeah. Or, he's gloating that he's slightly younger yeah, than I'm me the now. younger one I'm the yeah, younger one and uh, I do remember being me and our, our friend Oz were very yeah. co- very conf- Oz was even he was 24 or something then so he was even he was he, he, whippersnapper whippersnapper yeah. and we were just walking around Marks and Spencers looking for old because we decided to go as old women yes of course and we were the kind of uh, Monty Python-esque old Dears. That, I, think, I think that was that might our vibe. Be slightly making it sound better than it was. But. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we walked around Marks and Spencers looking at old ladies' dresses, very confused one lunchtime. <laughs> hasn't aged well, that, getting, has it, listeners? Getting, yeah. getting very uh, odd looks from the kind of security man. And uh, <laughs> But um, yeah, we ended up going with rollers in our hair, we had grey yeah. wigs with rollers in, mass- yeah. I, very large breasts, I seem to remember. <laughs> 
But it was fun. It was all in in the name of fun, kids. But but so twenty episode twenty nine means 29. that in some way, as a podcast, if we were an age, we're at that slightly different tricky age, as in that we're looking. Yeah. We feel a little old. We started to get a few creaks. We started to feel like oh. It's, you it's don't. Well, of, it's well, the weird thing. Yeah, you don't have the maturity to see that actually it's going to be brilliant and fine. It's okay. There's so much maturity and growth to come. Yeah. Uh, you see, there's a nervousness about the future. A, yes. You're, you're thinking, think, will you? Get, you know, once you hit thirty, will you I just should be collapse? Doing, yeah, I should be doing this by now. I should be doing that by Why now. Why aren't we? You know, significantly more successful than we actually are. Yeah. Exactly. And the good thing is that you know we'll still be asking that question at fifty. I mean, I do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what it means for the podcast, I guess, is that we are about to hit a landmark, aren't we? So uh, episode 30 was, will be our next one. And um, and I think we've been talk- we talked in the last episode about maybe marking it in some way with a look back, because actually we have been doing things, talking about not getting things done yeah. and having a fear of not kind of achieving. In, in a way... Um, We've, we've been very, very busy this last year and a half in particular. Um, and I wanted to ask you about Free Party because we've been kind of waffling on the last couple of episodes about the old man. But actually, your film has... You've, you've, you've kind of come on so far recently and you've had some incredible screenings recently that you were aiming at, which is the 30th... 30th anniversary of Carson Morton, is that right? The, the one yeah. in Bristol. Um, so tell us about that, how did it go? Well, I mean, as you know to some extent, obviously the, um, I think it was probably around Christmas time where I kind of realised um, that I probably had, well, I had five months really to fulfil this idea of screening the film in some fashion or another at the 30th anniversary of Carson Morton. And, um, and uh, when you're, you know, somewhat broke and you've got, um, you know, the, the normal challenges of life, you've got to make a living, um, it seemed extremely dif- distant. I mean, you know, at Christmas time, I was thinking we've cut maybe 20 minutes of the film. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not bad, but it needs shitloads of work. Yeah. Um, obviously, we did the screening in, in Barcelona, which we, ha- which we had... Uh, yeah, about 30, it was about 33 minutes or something we showed in Barcelona. Yeah, because I can remember thinking, he's done like a half an hour, and it yeah. looks great. It's like he's done so much. Yeah. He's got these, but it yeah. was, it's a, it was at best a quarter of the film. So, yeah. so it, in a way, you know, getting to Christmas and realising we hadn't moved the, the whole project forward at all because of, you know, coming back from Barcelona and being, you know, having to make a living, etc. Um, it, it was a sobering feeling coming into the new year, thinking, well, we've got to, got to push this forward. Um, and then something kind of magical happened in a way, because we pitched to the Arts Council for, um, for some funding. And the idea being that rather than just um, make it, you know, a film screening of some description, well, well yeah. why don't we take all of the um, contributors to the film and many of the contributors in fact who, who haven't even actually some of their work hasn't been in the film and maybe we could pitch the idea of some sort of exhibition um, thankfully I've got two very um, talented people to help me um, 
to put together the proposal for Meg and Layla from Show, Show Ponies, who put together the proposal of, of doing this exhibition, and the, the Arts Council went for it. So Amazing. we had this fantastic uh, thing to aim for, <clears throat> but we, <laughs> we literally found out eight weeks before the 30th anniversary of Castle Morton that we had this right. bit of budget. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to you know, suddenly be riding around in limos. It was still a tight budget, but what it did mean was that it was more than just, let's put the whatever state the film is on. Yeah. It was, oh, and let's put an exhibition on and let's have a party, maybe two parties, maybe three parties, yeah. at a, a fantastic venue in Bristol called the called Lost Horizon, which is connected to Shangri-La at um, Glastonbury. So, in some ways, on my shoulders was, let's get a cut of the film ready, and we're going to show it to an audience, not just any audience, but a, an audience largely made up of people who experience the, fi- the things that are the content of the film, and an exhibition, and three raves. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so, from kind of the start of March, I think it was March the 8th we discovered that, that we'd got this budget. It was the most intense two and a half months I've ever, ever, ever known because the film was probably still only about half cut and maybe three weeks after that we had a three hour and 45 minute version. Um, and so... And, and, it, and I imagine a terrifying audience to screen too. It's not a festival audience. These no. are a lot of the people watching your film are the people whose story you're telling absolutely so yeah I mean in a way we broke all the in good in true DIY cinema cult fashion we broke every single rule of documentary making which is show it to your contributors before anybody else because of course they have a vested interest in this story being uh, you know the way they remember it but actually so in a way we're throwing ourselves into the lion's den in some way and I was I was fairly sure that uh, it, this would be, you know, like being publicly flogged. <laughs> because a lot of people have got very strong opinions about those experiences back then. Yeah. So I had this added pressure and the pressure was uh, finish the film, of which obviously you may have played a huge part in helping me with the story and the graphics and the animations and uh, and then Nick and um, Andrew helped with the edit and it was a full-on, full-on two months, probably the most intense two months of my life, working, you know, all sorts of hours. You know, Kate, who's a co-producer, my partner, dealing with bouts of COVID. I had COVID, the kids had COVID, Aww. she had COVID. It was totally just about everything you can get <laughs> piled on top of each other, on top of itself. But we after one the last week was probably the maddest because obviously finishing any project is always about mm. that last week where it looks totally insurmountable and then somehow you pull it together and on the last day we had to go up to bristol and slept for 90 minutes for 48 hours uh working with nick you know over whatsapp uh sending messages you know can you fix this and he's sending me files and this that and the other and I, and I was still editing bits on the train on the way down to oh Bristol, God. cutting, uh, uh, splicing in audio that had been mixed by by Tom, our good friend Tom. Um, you know, I oh, was Tom doing mix the sound. Tom did the sound mix. Oh, fantastic. Um, 
our, our good friend Tom Parsons, who's a dubbing mixer. Everyone did it for you know extremely low rates and did it really through the sort of excitement about the project. And then you know in a delirium, full delirium, I, I got to um, uh, Lost Horizon, the venue, and, and arrived. And, and what blew me away most of all was because you know for those past that past month or so they've been yeah. putting together this exhibition. And I'd just been busy in my head with this, make, trying to get a film finished. And I arrived, and there was this exhibition there of all this amazing photography, all the contributors that have played such a part in telling the story of the film, and photos, and video, and and artworks, and archives. And, and walking into it, I was just dumbfounded. Aww. It was a thing that had come to life, you know. Again, from a kind of mad, harebrained scheme, mm. something real was there in the flesh. Uh, coinciding with the anniversary of Castle Morton and a room full of people just hyped up and dead excited. Um, and then the, 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 the exhibition sort of closed and they repurposed the space for a, a cinema and then they, then they screened the film and um, for the first time. And in a very rough cut state, you know, it was two hours and eight minutes and we'd probably take another 15, 20 minutes out of it. And I just stood at the back, petrified the whole time. I was just wedged into the fire exit, <laughs> convinced that someone was going to come and lynch me. I was just feeling sick through the tiredness and the, and the stress. Um, and then when I heard the first people laugh and, the, and people were standing on their feet, dancing and cheering, and, and I suddenly realised, oh, my God, it's sort of working, you know? I mean, it must have been... I mean, that's a real baptism of fire because in a way it's the worst and the best audience you could possibly put in front of your yeah. film. It's the, all the people who are in the film, you're telling their story uh, and you have all the kind of anxieties around that, but also it's the people that live through this and love this yeah. uh, and they're going to react in all the ways that you that you would possibly want them to. It must have been quite an exhilarating experience. I mean, and in, in loads, you know, you see it through their eyes and you're thinking, have I, uh, have I told this in a way that's untruthful? Have yeah. I... Have I cut corners have I have I lost detail that really needs to be in there but I was actually staggered that how by how positive the response was you know I did a Q&A afterwards um, with members of Spiral Tribe who were there who put a big rave on afterwards it's amazing full space um, and um, what was interesting was you know very few people said to me oh you missed this and you did this what actually was people were really fascinated by was the fact that there were stories that they hadn't heard. So they were living their strand of the story. So, you know, Spiral Tribe were living their strand of the story, but they had no idea what was happening to, to DOI or the free party people or the or travellers or, you know, everybody came from their vantage point. So what the, the victory, I suppose, I think I felt like the project has had is showing all these strands... Um, and that was what was so positively received was that people would go, oh, I had no idea that Which, that was happening. And they were yeah. fascinated because this was like seeing into a world they didn't know. You know. Which is your role as the documentary filmmaker. And it, it, I think it's shown in great effect in your film. To pick one, there's like funny sequences in your film where... For example, when it's who got who was first on site at Castle Morton, with every person you interview, it's like well, we were on, we were on the first bus, we were we were on there first, <laughs> we arrived first, we put up the first tent, and yeah. uh, it's just things like that. It's people's memory warped through time, 
and yeah. whatever else. Um, it's quite interesting to see your films about perspectives, uh, and I think maybe that's what they enjoyed seeing. They they saw all these others' perspectives involved. You know? Yeah, and, and, and you're, no, you're dead right. I think um, there was a certain awareness that you know a lot of things have been lost in the sands of time, the mists yeah. of time, and <laughs> indulgence, and uh, it being in a kind of pre-internet era and that was part of the charm of the project part of the charm of the film the idea was always that in some way we we're like you know seeing into a slightly lost history um, and you know I, I you know I was at first I kind of didn't really know how I was going to tell the story because there was so so little footage but you do uncover footage you do uncover stills and stories and, and radio and audio and, and news and um, it was, I suppose, that uh, ability to kind of put it together as a, as, a, as a sort of narrative from all of these sort of disparate strands that all came together, together predominantly at Castle Morton with this kind of um, amazing explosion of, uh, you know, uh, you know enjoyment and kind of an anarchy and all the rest of it mm. that that people really responded to. And of course, you know, there's a lot of people there that, that they were like, oh, I saw my, my truck over there. And yeah. so in some ways it was a, it was a very, um, you know, warm uh, reception because people have really been desperate to see their story told. And it is a magnificent story. And so I, I hope it's, um, I hope it's done a, a good enough job of kind of um, telling it in a kind of honest, yeah but entertaining way. You are listening to the debut feature film podcast. This is DIY Cinema Cult. And I, th and I think your role in kind of bringing all these threads together must really... Um, you know, for example, like you say, for example, people have seen it for their own perspective. They've got their own photographs that they yeah. that they, they can look back on, but they're not really, um, you know, you're painting a, a more rounder picture. You're bringing all these experiences together to paint a much broader picture of what was actually kind of going on, which must yeah. be fascinating for them to see. Yeah, I mean, we, we all know our version of our story, don't yeah. we? And, um, and in some ways, you know, we're constantly telling ourselves our own story. Yeah. We? We're constantly, we revise it. When we speak to other people, we say, oh, last night, what did you do yesterday? Oh, I did this. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, you know, to sort of, I suppose, because this was about a, a kind of a, a collective, a yeah. network of people, a group of people from different and disparate backgrounds that, that, amalgamated together that was almost the idea yeah. you know was that all these people from these disparate places and, all, and almost the idea that there wasn't the coverage no leader, you know there the, was no central person that triggered it all. yeah there were all these groups that came together and that was kind of part of the, the, the concept but also texturally as well within the documentary I felt it was part of the idea was that there wasn't there wasn't enough documentation yes Pic I mean there are pictures people did take pictures but there's not a lot of video film no. photography there wasn't press obviously it wasn't press there unless it was news footage of yeah yeah and I've got to use a bit of that because it gives the mainstream view of the whole extent of course yeah. and in a way it cr creates a funny counterpoint because there's bits where you know pe people are describing how they were just having the best time ever 
and then you see a really stuffy, stuffy guy yeah. going, well, these people are trying to take over our... You know, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, if you lived it, in a way, you didn't know what the mainstream view was. You, you, you read it in the paper. But there, you know, the people who lived its view has never really been represented, certainly in film at least. Yeah. And so people really responded to that. Um, it was also, obviously, watching it was kind of terrifying for me because I kind of saw all the flaws. Of so course, So in yeah. lots of ways, you, uh, you, it's a very... Um, it's a, it, you're bearing your soul and yeah. seeing all of the bits that you hate and know that you haven't quite finished yet and considering we were literally cutting bits on the on the train on the way down there still um, it was it was quite scary from those yeah. perspectives but um, it was extremely valuable because um, it gave us a real sense of where the pace was slightly off and where the where the um, emphasis is possibly a little bit too much on this and not quite enough on this uh, and so, you know, creatively, it's also been really, really useful. Um, but what's good, I guess, is just that at the very least, the people who have experienced, I know, I know obviously I've showed it three times. So mm. it was, a, it was a, uh, the first night was the Friday, and that was to predominantly the Spiral Tribe lot because they, they had their party. Then on the Thursday, that was to the Bedlam crew, and that was they had their party afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then it was also on the Saturday, which was the DIY crew, and there was travellers there, free party people. And that was that was you. So you saw it through these different sets yes. of eyes each time. Um, I mean, in a way, it was the perfect um, boot camp for your film to go through very, in terms yeah. of you, the final <laughs> stage. Brutal, but so it'll be so beneficial for the final stage. Yeah. The fact that you had all main bodies of the film yeah. there to to come and view it and for you to see it through their eyes and yeah. maybe take some of their feedback Definitely. and oh my god yeah 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 and i mean you know at the end of it i was obviously totally exhausted <laughs> and it, was, it nearly killed me um but the, but the fab thing that happened afterwards was that we got invited to show it to crew backstage at um, glastonbury so lovely we went to the glastonbury festival and screened it to another another audience again which was the crew backstage of the common the common is the um really the sort of brainchild of members of the free party community including steve bedlam and the it's whole almost of the like is, is, is it kind of like the evolution of maybe what happened in 1990 it's the kind of the it's through where the, it's where in some ways the rave part of that story ended up ironically right. back where it started right this yeah. is the fantastic circularity of it was that in 1990 the story starts with people like Steve Bedlam, uh, DIY, Circus War, um, Tonka, all being in that field at Glastonbury, yeah. meeting for the first time, yeah. travellers, ravers. And then there I was showing it back 32 years later in the same field to the same crew who were there the first time. It was just this just bizarre and poetically, you know, uh, perfect thing oh, to do and the response was amazing and people came a second time on the Saturday and and uh, we showed it on the solstice which obviously the film is almost like a story of solstices back to back from Stonehenge right through to to 1992 and 94 so it was an amazing uh, end to our kind of work in progress uh, screenings and and now our job is to get the money for finishing and um, 
that's largely archive costs and music licenses and completion money um, so starting to have those conversations with people what I don't want to do is reach back out to that same community again and go cap in hand come yeah. on guys because they've already contributed so much um, yeah. and although I think that they feel very uh, I hope they feel that um, we've done it all in the right way we're doing the yes. exhibition and everything the exhibition was free we you know we made as much of the kind of philosophy behind the idea of the film built into the, the whole process I don't want to um, expect them to to finish the the technical side of the film uh, which is the you know the archive costs and everything so I'm hoping that we can um, we can get uh, various bodies to kind of provide the, the, the finishing funding to get, and, to get us over the line for and the also, festivals, hopefully this autumn. Yes, and also I imagine you don't want to... Um, you don't want to have someone come on board to give you that money, to give you the finishing money to kind of organise licences and, and, and everything and compromise the way you're telling the story do you know what I mean you don't you don't after doing that honor to the people whose story it is you don't want to then you know have someone who comes along and says well we can pay for all the licensing but I think we should cut back on blah 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 you know that that's gonna yeah. be a that's gonna be a, a, an issue possibly you might have to kind of come up against yeah and I mean I think it's a really what's interesting is to um, to know to note in a technical way how films are made and how films are funded so we are now at rough cut really um, and uh, that means you you have created the story structured it but yeah. it could change it's not going to yeah. change radically as in it's not going to be a completely different story the story will be the story but you might cut 10-15 minutes out you might re-emphasize things you might yes. improve certain things but generally the narrative arc has been established so what we what, what we you know the, in the conversations we were having in October November with various slightly um, well big established production companies who wanted to come on as a co-production, they would have shaped the narrative in a different way, and I never yeah. wanted that to be the case. I wanted us to establish to establish what the narrative was, and we've done that. So now people who come on board, you hope, will really be there to just get you over the line mm. and to get to get it from being what it is at the moment which is a watchable rough cut entertaining with some rough edges things need improving to a fully polished finished film it's going to be a, probably a bit shorter so some detail may have to come out but it will be uh, largely the same story um, and uh, so we will have done the whole thing DIY we'll have created a film DIY I'm so excited about it, and I'm so happy for you and proud of you to get this far. So. Well, I'm, I'm, I couldn't have done it without you, for sure. Um, your name is up there as a co-producer, you're there. <laughs> <laughs> I was annoyed you weren't in Bristol to see it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm, I'm so well, I'm, I was critically skinned, unfortunately. It was the, yeah. the only reason why I could come and... and um, but, uh, yeah, I was so upset I couldn't be there, because I really, I so, so wanted to be there at the screenings. 
But um, another one. We'll have another one. There will be more. Well, there I had a conversation more. today with somebody about some potential stuff in uh, October and November. So mm. it's definitely looking positive. Um, and hopefully that will be a more finished version of the film. And... Um, and uh, many more parties to go to. And, oh uh, yes! <laughs> Maybe I can get out my costume of a OAP with big tits again. <laughs> only if only if Oz is here. We've got, to we've got to drag him all the way from Australia to get here. Yeah. But, oh um, my god. But uh, yeah, ex you know, exciting times when we consider where we've kind of been. And it's so funny. Like like recently, I was thinking as well that. You know, once the old man's kind of in its final stages, or at least once we get into kind of deeper into post-production, I want to revisit Routine, which is the kind of script yeah. that we were looking at right at the start in our shed yeah. uh, about making. And it's funny because I've got so many ideas about how we should change it, or how to make it better, or kind of the flaws it had. And what I want to do is kind of revisit um, Routine, almost as if it's I've been brought on as a new writer to kind of mm. here's this script it's not quite working yeah. it's got some problems it's a nice idea what can you do with it it's almost completely fresh as if I'm it's not even my script the, the benefit of, of time gives you yeah. perspective yeah. and there's just things about it that were just that were you know problematic that you, you could improve that we weren't making the most out of maybe and so I'm going to do I'm, I'm quite looking forward to doing some rewrites because I think it'll be really handy to have a really good looking script mm. off the back of um, the old man yeah. so that it, you know we'll have something ready to go and to show and say well, someone told me a long time ago something that um, I think is very was amazing advice mm. which was when you have don't eat yellow snow <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's also good advice <laughs> but, but the, the advice was when you have your project out in the world, when you're getting your moment in the sun, because mm. your project's out there, film festivals, whatever it is, make sure you have your other projects mm. sat in your pocket yeah. because you're going to get six months of conversations with people that you're not going to get after this. Yes. People can come up to me and go, oh, I love the film, yeah, it's great. What's your next project? And if you haven't got it in your pocket, yeah. then those conversations are gone because yes. you, if you say oh I don't know I'm thinking about something about you know this they're going to just give me it. just give me two months to write it and I'll send you've it you've got through. to have your project waiting yes. and the reason being is that this is your you know you're effectively a flash in the pan mm. unless you are ready for the next thing and momentum is sort of everything I think in creativity as in keeping the momentum going like you're talking about keeping the momentum going with um, the old man mm. as in things can you can very quickly become oh yeah I remember seem to remember that guy last year I don't know what he's been up to mm. and I kind of did this did that with my short film as in I had some ideas they were too ambitious for the time and then that was it and all those conversations yeah. were happy with, with I went to like 28 screenings of my short film and um, spoke to loads of people I had some big ideas but didn't it wasn't in my bag they wanted yeah, another script with me I didn't yeah, have yeah. the pitch ready have your pitch ready have the next project ready because you'll have conversations with people because they're only interested in what's the new fresh thing and they want to see that you are full of new fresh ideas 
and those doors will be, will be opened as a result. Yeah. So I think that's um, really important. Yeah. And I think that's a real benefit of things not happening straight away. Like people shouldn't be frustrated that they they've spent six months on the script or a year on the script and it hasn't worked. But then park that script, write something new, and then over you know maybe that second one won't happen. But over the years, what will happen is that you'll have a couple of really good scripts actually. Mm -hmm. And you might be making the fifth or sixth or seventh um, screenplay, and then what happens is if that suddenly takes off, you've got you've got you've got like a drawer of things you can pull on to yeah. say, well, I've actually got this idea, I've got this idea, I've got this idea, and, be ready. and it works in your benefit. It works to your benefit so much. Never wait for permission. You just have to start. Mark and I have been following. How would you describe it, Mark? Chaos magic. Chaos magic. Okay, so this is very reminiscent of our uh, Peronia walk. Oh my god, yeah. This is where we were, wasn't this it? Is, this is where the black box suddenly um, <laughs> had to switch on. Well, hopefully our recording techniques are um, a bit better this slightly, time. Slightly better, yeah. I've got a slightly better case for my Zoom recorder now, so we don't have to have it in my bag and what have you. Yeah. This, this little corner here is where the, uh, the Fox family lives. Oh yeah? And so, uh, yeah, pretty much <clears throat> as soon as it's dark, there's always a little family of foxes just prowling around here. Ah. And uh, they kind of own this little neck of the woods. What, do you hang out here at night time? Or yeah, just come here and have a sort of relax. <laughs> Haven't moved around. They'll <laughs> sleep with the foxes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just where we go. Well, I mean, my place is down there, but the sun, where's the sun? Where is the sun? Well, it's up, we've we kind of got, we've been low now, <coughs> aren't we? Listeners, we're trying to catch the sun, which I'm is trying to dropping find the away. Sun. And I have a feeling if we went up there, okay. the top of those roofs look like they've got a bit of sun. What, what are you yeah. saying? We've got to climb up on the roofs? <laughs> <laughs> we will do anything for our art, won't we? The sun's going to be outside some, you know, kebab shop, and we'll just stand there going, we'll just oh, just stand we've got outside the, the kebab got the shop. Sun. We've got the sun now. I can see it starts. So what? So what's the next steps then for you uh, <clears throat> with the project? Are you? Uh... Uh, well, it's funny because, you know, the old man's always been a film of two really complete halves. You know, we did the first half just. To get going, and now the second half, we've got we've got roles to cast still right. that we haven't cast. So it's it's almost like you're kind of starting from really pre-production stages again in well, a way. Which roles have you got to cast then? For the really, process? really important roles like the mother of the boys, oh, yeah. <clears throat> the mum, the wife of one of the of Drew, one of the brothers. Yeah. So really key uh, roles. Uh, so it's quite funny, it's almost like kind of going right back to square one again and then do the second stage and mm. and hopefully, you know, I just have faith in the fact that it all kind of works, you know, once we get those characters in place and they're, and they're, and they're in the scenes that pre, pre you know, are, are pre the, the stuff we've shot, so hopefully it all yeah. kind of makes sense and it makes sense emotionally with the characters and the, oh, look at that big building. Um, yeah, hopefully it makes sense with uh, emotionally with the characters yeah you know for example you know like drew is on the phone on his phone that stuff that we shot him talking to his missus 
and his missus isn't even cast yet. You know, and <laughs> it talks to his mum. His mum even isn't even cast yet. The magic of cinema. Uh, and hopefully it all works. Oh, There's the sun. There's the sun. There we go. The more closer to the sun we get. We're just going to stand up some outside somebody's house, aren't we? <laughs> Um, excuse me, we're just, uh, are we okay to just sit here and drink another beer? Because we found the sun finally. I can see something, is that a park up here? Oh, is I can sit on the top of the kids' slide. Yes. Is this oh, a, is that this a feels very DIY cinema cult. As we, it, as so we if you had a choice of who the, uh, <coughs> the mother was? Um, yes, it's a very, very tricky role to cast because it is quite key and... Uh, you want someone with a bit of heft, a yeah. bit of weight, a bit of kind of experience to kind of pull the two brothers together in a way. And there we go. There's the sun. Okay. Oh look, it's here. Look. Yeah. We got it. Oh, we got it. We're sat in the That's sun. The last little bit. Feel a bit wrong having a beer in the uh, kids' playground. No, we're sat in the kids' playground. This isn't what. This maybe isn't what we had planned for DIY cinema cult when we uh, started out. <laughs> Just two dads drinking beer in the playground. My kids actually do play in yeah, this my very kids, playground. My kids do play in this playground. Yeah. Where well, we got some ve vegan hazelnut chocolate. There you I go. feel like this young guy playing football uh, is putting pressure on him. So it is a case of. Uh, yeah, casting the rest of the film and hoping, dear God, that um, it, it makes visual and emotional sense. The fact that, and the fact that it's been done in two halves, but there just wasn't a way, other way we could have done it. I think it. Yep. Uh, it was just out of pure necessity. Like we didn't have the money, we didn't have the time to do it any other way. And the whole just start thing. It was mm. about, if we didn't just start it, it wasn't going to happen at all. Well, the fact is that all projects, unless they have infinite money, infinite time, mm. are done however they're done. Yeah. There is, um, there's really no right or wrong way. Yeah. There's only just the way that makes it happen. Um, and so, likewise, my film um, happened through me mm. just finding some people to start interviewing. Um, going and doing it and yours has kind of gone through shooting the first 60-70% yeah. and then seeing where you are at the end of that yeah. so that's a better place to be than not having done it at all and expecting the perfect circumstances to arise so that will never happen no, in fact what's happened is on a more general scale I've always thought that, you know, when I was a teenager getting into film thinking, right, you know, maybe I'll direct my first feature when I'm about 25 because <laughs> that's what Orson Welles did. And if it's good enough for Orson Welles, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of go, well, actually, you know, I'm 25 now, but, you know, I'm broke and the situation isn't right. I don't, you know, things aren't perfect and you wait for things to be perfect and it's time to be right. And what's actually happened is, you know, I'm 47 and, uh, and I've actually decided to pick a time that couldn't be the least perfect time to make a feature <laughs> film <laughs> in the fact that, you know, I've never been more broke and the world's all on fire and, you know, <laughs> there's war in Europe and yeah. it's, uh, you know, everything's kind of 
gone tits up. But that's the time it's kind of happened, and you just have to go, well, that's gonna, it's, it is what it is, right? Mm. comes into being until you start making that thing come to being. Mm. Nobody will say to you, hey, you look like exactly the sort of person that I'm going to put this spare million quid I've got in my pocket yes. um, into making some magical idea that you may have in your head. Yeah. They're not going to do it. And in a way, our early interview with Haddy all the way back then yeah. was um, exactly what we needed because albeit Haddy's advice is not always advice you'd want to follow mm. the specific advice he had with the so very sobering advice was that nobody's going to give you that money yeah that's used at the title of the, the podcast yeah um, <clears throat> was exactly what we needed to hear and so, in a way, what you need to do is, um, is accept the idea that, well, it's just down to you. You just have to just do it yourself. Yeah. There's no other way around it. And once you do it yourself, other people come along for the journey. Well, there was a brilliant speech, I, uh, a talk I saw given by Jay Duplass, who's that director who's mm. famous mumblecore director, but has obviously gone on and transitioned into, you know great things and he's a brilliant filmmaker and, and his whole talk was about you know you spend your early years as a filmmaker waiting for the cavalry to show up and he goes you're gonna what's gonna happen is <clears throat> I'm gonna do something someone's gonna see me mm. and they're gonna go I'm amazing you're amazing here's the money we need <coughs> you you're just the right guy we need to do this thing Absolutely. and you think well they haven't shown up yet so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take $50 and make a film with my friends mm. and then the people are going to see that and then the cavalry are going to show up yeah and so you make that film and nobody shows up mm. so you think right okay all right that didn't work now i'm going to take like a thousand dollars and i'm going to make a feature film mm. with my friends and then when they see that the cavalry the hollywood cavalry <laughs> are going to show up and they're going to be so impressed by me and it's going to change my life and then what happens is you make that movie nobody shows up and his whole thing is that actually you end up becoming the cavalry for other people yeah um nobody comes to you you have to kind of go out put yourself forward and do those things yeah i i listened to uh john higgs um on adam buxton podcast the other day mm. on my way back from glastonbury funny enough and um it was a very similar idea he took a punt actually at 40 to become a writer um, and his attitude was you know he'd done creative stuff before but a little bit like us 
not re not really what you want to do. Just mm. in the creative industries, you know. Mm. In fact, his first job was um, as a runner on the Big Breakfast. Oh right. Yeah. And he kind of thought, you know, <clears throat> when you're quite young, you think, oh, it's a cool job. It's not a bad job. But then when you actually do it, you suddenly realise, God, this is just shit. Mm. And he described it really in a funny way. It was full of very privileged people who were really high on cocaine, <laughs> thinking every single idea they had was amazing and getting away with it. <laughs> and it was, it, was in, it was his frustration almost that, those people seem to manifest their reality that he's from his point of perspective and I would argue it from our perspective too yeah. they manifest their reality just through a certain sort of self-conviction and mm. a kind of self-belief that albeit one that's probably um, uh, we would we would argue is illusory mm. they did manage to make it work and his argument was well if they can sort of do that then maybe you know my I can use my love of books and writing yeah. and stories maybe I can write stuff and maybe I can write a book and so at 40 he jacked everything in and decided to write a book and and he described it as um, well maybe you're not fulfilling a niche that already exists mm. what you're actually doing is you're creating a space that people didn't know they needed and you won't know really until you do it and then when you do it, hopefully what happens is that few people respond to it enough and that generates a new space that didn't exist in the world. Yes, in some ways, you can't be so anachronistic that um, it's a space that nobody in the world is going to be interested in. Yeah. You can't be so knowingly niche that you're, uh, you're almost, you know, um, creating a... a, 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 a creating an attempt to have no audience you're not doing that but you're just speaking with your own voice and speaking with your own voice as strongly as you can hopefully connects with other people that see that voice and understand that voice yeah and of course he's one of those people that actually i've understood his i've listened to his stuff yeah. and then it has totally connected with with me um, this book on the KLF, um, he did a book about yeah. Timothy Leary, he's done a book about William Blake. No, he did a book about Watling Street, strangely enough, which is where my mum lives, Kilburn High Road, which is Watling Street. Oh, it isn't. Um, where I grew up. Um, and so it, I really like that idea that obviously he, he, and he's a big fan of Alan Moore and, you know, yeah. thinks of the KLF as being a, a process of chaos magic. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he just, yeah, he just described this process of creating a new space that people didn't necessarily know that they needed yeah. or that, um, that, that would hold any value until it was there. And then once it's there, then people will find connection with that space. And, uh, and he said one of the most important things was to um, not try to imagine what people want but to just try to do fully what you feel mm -hmm. and then um, because then that's sustainable because you know if you if you try to imagine what people want then you're constantly doing that and you're going to fail regularly whereas mm. if you try to make truly what you feel a hundred percent what you feel hopefully that makes connection with people and then this makes this new space mm. so um, I thought <coughs> that was really interesting because um, 
it's not an entirely kind of individualistic approach. It's not saying do whatever you want, but it's saying, in a way, you know, take a punt, take a leap of faith. Song goes down on episode 29 of Joe and I should have my <laughs> 29 episodes. 29. How have we managed to talk so much shit? What bollocks have we been going on about for 29 <laughs> episodes? This weekend, mm. I was talking, uh, I was in Cardiff with my Welsh friends and um, oh, my show friends, off. Show off, yeah, got Welsh <laughs> friends as well. <laughs> Uh, I don't just live in uh, Alipine. <laughs> and uh, spoke to our, my friend Richard, who mm. works at a podcast company. Mm. And he said he's listened to quite a few episodes. He said he really enjoyed it. Oh. And he says he thinks we sound very professional. Bloody hell. And we've done something that other people haven't done, which is um, be quite open and honest about the creative process. Oh. So I was, it was really good to hear that. That is nice. From straight from the horse's mouth, somebody who um, gets commissioned to do uh, radio and BBC and uh, podcast series for uh, big companies and things. So um, well, that's nice to hear. So there you go. That's lovely to hear. We're we're not doing that bad a job, I think. I think there maybe there's some value in the fact that yeah, you know, so much podcasting is about this is how you should do this. Yeah. Now we're going to talk to a screenwriter who's brilliant and very successful about how he did his brilliant screenwriting yeah. life. Whereas we're kind of just waffling, we're kind of in the process of finding our way. Yeah. And I guess we're not really kind of editing too much on the way and kind of just waffling through and bumbling about and finding our way through mm. our own process. Whether it be documentary feature film, mm-hmm. Or a narrative, or a, you know, a comedy drama feature film. Comedy drama or dramedy? Dramedy. Dramedy. I think it's a comorama. <laughs> I think it's a comorama. Comorama. I'm, I, it's a new thing I'm developing myself. I'm the pioneer of comorama. Uh-huh. Dark comorama. <laughs> or um, yeah, maybe. Romantic comorama. Comorama. Um, I like it. I like Komorama. Komorama. Um, uh, yeah, there some, you know. Yeah, there's some vindication there. Some, that's um, very nice. I like that. Because mm. I thought we were just two knobheads just talking about Well, we are that as well. <laughs> <laughs> there's obviously a market for that. <laughs> I'd, we have had our first listener from, I think everyone agrees, the hardest country in the world, mm-hmm. Ukraine. Yes. I heard we got our first listener from Ukraine recently. That's amazing. Um, considering the the challenges it must be to be uh, anybody in Ukraine at the moment, mm. and um, uh, if if this podcast can in some way give anything to anybody over there, then I feel extremely privileged because, it, like you say, we are just sort of two friends and colleagues talking about our experiences mm. and over there it shows that there's a universality to um, to people's lives and experiences uh, if people if even one person in that 
setting can can enjoy or find some interest or value in what we're doing then um well i'm mentally proud i'm sure it was just an accidental click There we have it, episode 29 of DRI Cinema Cult. We are now in our final week of our Kickstarter campaign for the Old Man feature film. So if you haven't already, please go to kickstarter.com, search for the old man, or click the link in the show notes of this episode and you'll be taken directly there. The campaign runs until the 2nd of October, so there's no time to waste. Get over to kickstarter.com and there you'll see there's loads of information on there about our film. You can read lots of background on it. You can see all the behind the scenes films that we've been posting over the last couple of weeks. They are also linked on our our Facebook pages, on the Old Man Feature Film Facebook page, but also the DIY Cinema Cult uh, Facebook page. You'll see them there. And thanks to all of you who've got involved so far. Thank you so much for coming on board, joining us in getting this film to the big screen. We really, really can't do it without you. And I cannot wait to get this film made, get it up on the big screen and share it with you very, very soon. And join us next time for episode 30 of DIY Cinema Cult. on twitter at diy cinema cult or on instagram we are diy underscore cinema underscore cult seek out the diy cinema cult group on facebook or why not email us at diy cinema cult at gmail.com Follow.